Well, hello, Crossway. We are continuing a teaching series in Acts called Supernatural. Open your copy of the scriptures to Acts chapter 2, verse 14. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples of Christ and they're out in the streets and the crowd who witnessed this doesn't know what to make of it. And so Peter uses the opportunity to preach a sermon to the crowd. The apostle is going to give a sermon to explain what it all means and how the crowd needs to respond to what they're seeing and hearing. Now, this is a long speech, and uh, there's really no way to chop it up and cut parts out of it and still make sense of the, of the flow of thought. Uh, and so I thought today, instead of you just sitting there listening to me read all of it on audio, I'm going to ask you to pause the message right now and read verses 14 through 41 yourself. Then come back to the message. So if you would, hit the pause button now and read verses 14 through 41. Let's pray. Lord God, you are mighty and you are amazing. And we need your word to understand what you're doing in the world right now and what you are doing in us right now. So please open the word to us where it makes sense. And we pray, God, that uh, you would open up our heart to receive it, to understand it, and most importantly, that we would respond to it, to what you are saying. We thank you, Jesus, for all that you're about to do. In, in your name we pray. Amen. What is God doing in the world? It's a question that people are asking, especially uh, right now. It's a great question to ask because at the very least, it assumes that God is interacting with his creation, his creatures. Unfortunately, when, when all is going well and life moves at an ordinary mundane pace, we all tend to live like deists. Am I right? You know, the, the man upstairs, he created the world, he wound it up, and he's let it go. His part is done, and everything else is up to us. But when we ask the question, what is God doing in the world? It opens up our eyes to the possibility and purpose of miracles. Miracles are phenomenon that better fit a supernatural understanding of reality than a purely natural understanding. Usually, if you notice, miracles happen after a person prays to God, after they cry out to God. It's almost as if God actually heard his creatures and is actually responding in real time to them. For example, uneducated backwoods Galileans pray to a God in a room and then later become instantly able to speak foreign languages and dialects without any formal training. Now, you cannot merely dismiss that with a purely natural explanation, like, you know, they're just all drunk at 9 a.m., and still be intellectually honest. Here are what miracles in general, and Pentecost in particular, declare to us. God 
is actively at work in the real world, not just in private places of worship. Lest we forget this, lest we get lulled to sleep by the boring hum of ordinary living, God shows up in ways that we cannot explain naturally to remind us that he is on the move in the world and he is moving all of history toward his purpose. What is God doing in the world right now? What's he doing right now? That is the question that the crowd was asking on that day, and it is the question that we should ask as well. Here is the answer that we get through Peter's speech. God is bringing salvation through Christ to all who embrace him as their Lord. God is is bringing salvation through Christ to all who embrace him as their Lord. Peter actually answers three questions for us. Um, that, that we're going to look at right now. What is God doing? Who is God using to do it? And how should we respond to what he's doing? So first, what is God doing? Well, God is bringing salvation to all kinds of people right now. God is bringing salvation to all kinds of people right now. Let's go back to verse 16. But this... I mean, this that you're seeing, this that you're witnessing and hearing, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he's going to quote Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Peter tells us that God is keeping a promise. He is pouring out the Holy Spirit on all kinds of people, all flesh. And that phrase means uh, several things, not just one thing. First of all, it means that God is empowering all groups of people who believe in him to be witnesses to him. That's what it means to prophesy about God. It means you're bearing witness to him. You're you're, you're telling forth about who God is. In Old Testament times, God put his supernatural power on a few people to tell the world about him or, you know, to prophesy. But in the last days, today, God promised that he would fill all his people with his spirit, men and women, young people and the elderly, rich and poor, Important people and unimportant people, Jews and everyone else. All categories of people will be given supernatural power through the Holy Spirit to speak about God to the world. Now, look at verse 18. He says, Even on my male servants and female servants, my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, notice here, Peter changes. If you go back and look at Joel's prophecy, you'll notice that Peter changes the wording of Joel's prophecy just slightly here. Because remember, Peter is explaining what it means to the crowd of listeners and people who are observing this. God calls these male and female servants mine, mine. God is making servants and slaves, right? Part of his covenant people right now at this time. Why? 
because God has put his spirit in them, which marks them off as his people. And P- Peter's going to come back to this at the end of his speech even more explicitly. So, what, God, what is God doing? Well, God is gathering all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, into his one covenant people by pouring out his spirit in these days. That's what he said. That's what he promised he was going to do, and he's doing it right now. There's one more thing that this phrase means. Look at verse 21. It says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. When God puts his spirit inside of a person, it's also a sign that he has forgiven them of all their sins against him. When someone says that they've been saved, or I'm saved, you should ask, saved from what? Well, Peter declares that they've been saved from God's coming judgment. That's what they've been saved from. To, quote, call upon the name of the Lord is a phrase that means a person trusts that the Lord uh, will forgive them for their sins. And Peter's emphasis is that each individual person must call upon the Lord in order to be saved. So, what is God doing in the world? God is bringing salvation, forgiveness of sin to all kinds of people right now. According to Joel and the Apostle Peter, there is a day of judgment and darkness coming. But right now, right now, because of Christ, God is just dumping out his mercy. He's dumping out his blessings and eternal life on people who have rejected and resisted him. Right now, God is saving sinners indiscriminately through his Lord. Right now, God is transforming God-haters into God-preachers, God-prophesiers. This is an amazing thing that God is doing right now. You may say, well, so what? (laughs) So, put your trust in the name of this Lord, in the character and reputation of this Lord, through whom God is doing all of his saving and forgiving and adopting and loving and empowering. Put your trust in him. And you may say, well, great. So, who is this Lord that God is using to save his people well, I'm glad you asked. God, God is using his resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus of Nazareth. That's who he's using. God is using his resurrected and exalted Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 32 again, and we're going to read through to verse 36. This Jesus, not just any Jesus, right? This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, is has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, King David, he did not ascend into heaven, David himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, 
whom you crucified. Peter makes it clear that God appointed Jesus to be the Lord and Messiah. Jesus, if you remember, went around claiming to be God's anointed king who was bringing his kingdom. And he, he proved his claim was true through many signs and wonders. Yet, despite all his proofs, people rejected Jesus strongly, vehemently rejected him. Jews and everybody else alike. Jews and Gentiles alike did this. Jews and Gentiles were fine with him uh, being a moral teacher. They were fine with him even being a prophet of God, but it offended them that he claimed to have the approval of God Almighty and the exalted title of Lord, King. They just couldn't stomach that claim, Jew and Gentile alike. And Peter says that the greatest proof that Jesus really is the approved Christ and Lord who brings salvation is the fact that God raised him from the dead and made him the king. And far from leaving him in the grave to rot, God publicly raised Jesus to life and gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on all kinds of people so that they might live connected to the Father just as he is. I mean, you cannot get a higher recommendation. You cannot get a higher status in all the universe than a personal resurrection. You understand? That is a unique, one-of-a-kind, exclusive status. And it should erase all doubt for all time that Jesus is no mere Galilean peasant. Jesus is the Christ. And he's the Lord over all. He is worthy of worship from everyone. See, God is rescuing his people through the Lord Jesus Christ. But Peter reminds us something of something here. There is a big problem. Not only a problem for the crowd that heard, but for you and for me as well. We reject the man that God has established as Christ and Lord. When Peter says, this Jesus you crucified, he's not claiming that every individual person in the crowd literally picked up physical nails and drove them into the hands of Jesus. That, that wouldn't make any sense. And that's not what he's saying. What Peter is saying is that they all share corporate responsibility for his crucifixion, because when the king came and the king was presented to them as he is, God's choice, God's man, they rejected him instead of receiving him. And they are responsible for that. That was at the heart of the crucifixion event. Everybody there was saying, we don't want this Jesus to be our Lord. We want someone else. We have no king but Caesar. And we can't be too hard on them, can we? Because if we're being honest, we, we all do the same thing today. Do we not, Crossway? Sure we do. 
if we're being honest, we are fine with Jesus as a wise teacher. We're fine with him being a life coach that could help us out, or even a social reformer, or even a prophet of God. But we just cannot stomach him as our king and sovereign. When it comes to the specifics of our life, it it really offends us that Jesus talks to us like he has rights over our life, doesn't it? And so when he does talk to us this way, we tell Jesus he better check himself. We cry blasphemy. But Jesus just keeps right on talking to us as the king that God chose. And then we, we do whatever we need to do to silence his authority over our life. We cry, crucify him. Cut him off. Listen, guys. It may feel small, but it is no small thing to reject God's chosen and approved Lord. And that is... That is what all sin really is. So if, let's make sense of this. If, if God is generously bringing salvation to all sinners through King Jesus, but we clearly reject this King of salvation over and over, what should we now do? What should we now do? See, that is the question that the crowd asks. And Luke has written it in such a way that it suggests that we should be asking that same question ourselves. What should we now do in light of this? How, how should we respond to this gospel message that we've heard? Well, we should repent and pledge our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord. That's how we should respond. We should repent and pledge our allegiance to Jesus as our Lord. Look at verses 37 through 39. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When you and I hear the gospel of Jesus, the right question is always, what should I do now? In light of what I've heard, what should, how should I respond to what I heard? See, the good news is not an idea to ponder hypothetically at your convenience. It is news declaring what God has done for us in Christ, which by definition demands every listener to respond in one way or another. 
even to not respond to this Jesus, to this news, is itself a response. You can't not respond. I mean, upon hearing, even right now, as I am preaching to you, you are either moving towards Christ in faith or your heart is moving away from him in unbelief and there is no middle ground on which you can stand. You are moving one way or another to what you are hearing about Jesus. The gospel demands a response. And Peter says, Peter says that. Peter says that, The gospel of this Jesus requires a response to all who hear it. And so let's let's break this response down a bit that he gives us. He says we need to repent. Well, what does repent mean? It literally literally means to a change of direction or to turn around. In other places in Acts and and in the scriptures, it says repent and turn. That's what it means. It means to turn around. It's, it's not merely feeling bad about sins. That's regret. Criminals regret getting caught for what they did. Doesn't mean that they've repented, does it? No, repentance is, it's a reordering of the direction of our life. Okay? Our, our compass points in a different direction now. To repent of our sins means that at the core of our being, we denounce and abandon our former way of life. Yes, we're still tempted to rebel against the Lord, of course, but, but at our core, fundamentally, we consider rebellion foolish. We consider it rubbish in the way of death. That's what it means. In the state of Texas, inmates who have become members of predatory prison gangs are being given a pathway out of the gang and towards a life of hope. And they do this through this nine-month program that's called GRAD which means gang renouncement and disassociation. Over the course of nine months, inmates are taught how to renounce their former membership and and disassociate from gang members. And you've got to ask yourselves when you hear that, why is this necessary? Why is this training necessary? Well, because a gang doesn't just let you leave them and take up a new life. And these inmates know that to leave the gang makes them a marked man the rest of their life. But they've also realized that to stay connected to that gang in any way only ends in death for them. So in faith, they take the risk and they renounce and disassociate, believing it will lead to life for them. You see, repentance is like that. Repentance is an act of faith where we completely renounce and disassociate from our former way of rebelling against God. If you want to receive the life that Jesus gives, then you must abandon how you have put yourself at the center of your life. You admit that putting self at the center leads you to certain death. The other way of responding to the gospel message is to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For the Christian, water baptism is a declaration of our repentance of sins. It is a a renouncement of our allegiance to self. We are declaring 
publicly, as a disciple of Jesus, I have turned away. I've turned away from sin. I am taking the first step that my king has asked me to take. But baptism is also an announcement. It's an announcement, right? We're announcing something. It also means that a disciple is giving their allegiance and their trust specifically to Jesus, who rose from the dead and gives eternal life. We are turning towards Jesus, towards his way of life. That's what the phrase, in the name of Jesus, means here. Verse 38 is really an elaboration of what Peter has said earlier in verse 21. Remember when he said, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, well, what does it mean to call on the name of the Lord? What does that look like? He tells us. Baptism is like a prayer of faith for a disciple, so to speak. It's like an acted out prayer. It's making the verbal now visible. It's a visible way of expressing the reality that we have called upon the name of the Lord to be saved. And we see here that repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ are two sides of the same conversion coin. And this response is what the gospel demands of us today and every day of our life after. We're constantly... Uh, repenting and trusting in Jesus. Brothers and sisters, good news. God is at work in the world right now, even during a pandemic. May the Spirit of God prick our heart to and cause us to respond to the wonderful Lordship of Jesus in our life. And may the Lord bring many more people into His salvation And so prove that he is at work in the world right now today. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your apostles who proclaim this good news to us. And they tell us to respond. Don't just be hearers of the word. Respond. Respond to what you hear. For the one that that is being spoken about, by definition, demands a response. So, Lord, help us be those people. Lord, um, go deep into our hearts by your Spirit and change our hearts and change our loves and change our allegiance more and more towards Christ the King and His way of life. We thank you for all that you are doing now and all that you will be doing soon. We love you and we trust you. Amen.